wonderful wizard of Oz. Hello everyone, welcome to the Stephen King cast, One Man's Musings on the Works of Stephen King. Each week I will review one entry in the bibliography of Stephen King in the chronological order of publication, and this particular episode is a bonus episode to the... Uh, review of The Dark Tower Part 4, Wizard and Glass. So if you are listening to this, please note that this is an in-depth dive into the world of The Dark Tower. There are spoilers galore, so if you have had any interest in completing The Dark Tower uh, and you want to get into The Dark Tower without any spoilers, I would not listen to this particular episode <clears throat> as I re- as I spoil the events of the the last few books of the Dark Tower series. But before I get into it, I want to share a listener email. Uh, this is from David who writes, "Hi old pod slinger. Sorry for the long email, dude, but you stirred me right the hell up. Technologically, I am a fossil. That being said, I have newly discovered podcasts as a source of entertainment/information/etc. And discovered your King cast quite by accident. I've been working my way through your episodes, that sounds vile, doesn't it? And have enjoyed the ones I've listened to immensely. I find your analysis to be intelligent, well thought out, sincerely original, and funny as hell. There have been so far many incidences of, oh yeah, that's right, or cool point of view, never thought of that, listening to your thought-provoking podcast. And I mean that literally, as in your review of The Shining. Jeez, dude, seriously, the checkoff boiler? I missed the next eight minutes of the podcast I was laughing so hard. And yet, yes, exactly, the checkoff boiler. Perfectly logical, never saw it coming, never thought of it that way before, very familiar with the gun on the mantelpiece in Act 1, and realized what a perfectly placed plot point. I never saw it before, and you just came out with it during the podcast, and I almost did a spit take. Zoinks! Let me curb my enthusiasm for a moment, back up, and conform to propriety. My name is David. I have never noticed that... uh, ...that you gave your own name at any time, so I've been thinking of you as CR in my mind, as in I have to remember to email CR and tell him that he bullseyed again. I'm a 50-something... I'm 50-something from a small town in Maryland, and my relationship with Mr. King began in high school... I think the seventh grade with Salem's Lot. A friend was reading the paperback, the original black one with the drop of blood, I think. I'm getting old and could very easily be wrong, and gave it to me when she'd finished. Oh my god. Now please understand, this was 1977 or 78, I can't remember exactly. Up until this point, my soul has been well and truly sold to Robert A. Heinlein, Larry Niven, J.R.R. Tolkien, and C.S. Lewis. I lived part time in Narnia and part time in the world of the optimistic future. This was the first horror novel I'd ever read. Talk about your first drink turning out to be grain alcohol on an empty stomach. Again, I utter zoinks. But I was so hooked. This was not only a great introduction to horror, or should I say horror with a capital H and it's in um, quotation marks, but horror done in such a way that I was like Susan Norton when she finds Mike Ryerson's class ring glinting in the moonlight that rode the autumn dark. (laughs) I believed it. I believed it all, and I could not wait for more. So envy me, my new friend. Envy me mightily. After finishing Salem's Lot, I went back, read Carrie, and from that time forward, I bought the hardbacks 
the day they came out, often waiting at the doors of the local borders or BNN or whatever local scribe shop happened to be. Envy, I say? Indeed, for I am one of the lucky ones who fell in love with King's writing almost at the beginning. So I got to see the interconnections in the Dark Tower overshadowing everything as he was writing it. And then I got to that haze of green and gold section of the Dark Tower 7, where he had the audacity to write himself into his own story, and then to have the further audacity to pull it off so gracefully, so entertainingly, so in service to the story. Well, just thinking about reading that for the first time, I can remember thinking again when I believed it. I believed it all, and I'm not to shame that I say that I cried when the single rose was planted in the woods, and when Oi howled, my heart did too. Lots of howling in book seven. Funny and true story, my friend Cheryl was reading the Dark Tower series at my urging. And soon she was hooked and quickly read her way to book seven. Her boyfriend's name was, and still is, Jake. Cheryl and I were working at the same place at the time, so we could talk every day about where she was in the story. The morning after she read about Jake Chambers' death in book seven, she came in with eyes red from crying. I asked her what was wrong, and she started to cry and said, I can't believe that Jake died. While we were talking about what a moving scene it is in the book, that it got me to crying a little myself. Our boss came in, saw us both crying about Jake's death, and freaked out. After explaining that her boyfriend wasn't dead, we were talking about a character in the Dark Tower. His response was, A book? Are you effing kidding me? I thought your boyfriend was dead. You're crying about something that happened in a book? Well, yes, we were. And your podcast has brought that memory back to me in spades. You made me remember how I've always felt that King has been able, over and over and over again, to capture my imagination, my heart, my emotions, my core values, whatever he happens to capture at any given time. How his storytelling usually leaves me wanting more. With very few exceptions, I have read and enjoyed and in many cases love what he's written. You make me think things over. Very cool of you to do that, but I digress. My point, and I do have one, is that I watched the King multiverse become more or less in the order that King thought of it, and pieced it together before my mind's eyes, so to speak. And it was fascinating in the extreme at the time, and on all of the many subsequent rereads since that time. I pick up Salem's Lot practically every October. To me, it's the quintessential October book, along with Something Wicked This Way Comes, but again, I digress. The point is, when I began listening to your reviews, I began looking at a lot of things from your point of view, and have very much enjoyed the ride. Haven't heard everything, but it's all downloaded. I'm not sure if I'm subscribed or not, but if not, I can still listen to everything, which is what it's important. Your reviews contain so many things that make me nod in agreement or laugh out loud or disagree with, or in a lot of cases, change my mind about something. The end of Nosferatu, for example. Let me tell you something, sir. You've really got a sharp mind's eye. I am very impressed with your knowledge and acumen on all things King. That being said, I've impressed myself as well since I believe I've gotten most of the references you make, that old pop culture thing, in reference to the books, media you're reviewing. When you list names like the alpha male or the various assorted kingisms, I'm able to keep up and recognize the books you're touching on and thereby see your connections being made. It made me re-experience this world of wonderful books that I've spent most of my life reading, but through your eyes. Do you know that I've actually spent the whole 30 years on the way to the tower? That's a cool kind of thing to realize, and I have your podcasts to thank for it. So thank you, Sai. Um, so one parting comment on Salem's Lot. It occurred to me many years ago, 1986, I think, that through Salem's Lot, I think, my favorite King book, 
It contains, in my opinion, a very serious flaw. When Barlow kills Mark's parents in a shocking and crazy scary scene leading up to the corruption of Callahan. But Barlow is described as crashing through the window over the sink, crossing to the parents, bashing their heads together, and killing him. But how did he get in? No one invited him. He didn't get invited into the cock duty house! And the whole rest of the novel kind of hinges on the Callahan-Barlow thing. I wouldn't mention it, except that King writes it in a wonderful Danny Glick at the window scene that they have to be invited in. Am I wrong? Your thoughts? Strauss Monkey. So, uh, with the... I don't know. I don't know what... Uh, I don't know if Barlow has... Because he's the type 1 vampire, I don't know if he has more power. I don't know if he needs to be invited in. Do we ever see Barlow have to get invited in anywhere? I don't know if the type twos is that what anyone that he makes i don't know if that's a type that's a type two right um i don't I, so maybe they have to get invited in but the master doesn't i'm not quite sure or it just could be a plot point a major plot hole um but i feel kind of the same way that you do that you do um Strauss monkey it just doesn't really take anything away from the book because the rest of the book is so good and yeah it definitely is quintessential october reading and dude just thanks for the the um that email that's a great email thank you for the compliments but more importantly just thank you for uh for sharing um all of your thoughts and your experiences with stephen king all right guys now i'm going to get into my analysis of the spoilers um the the deeper dive into the dark tower the first i just want to talk about flag again as you probably know, if you're listening to this, then you know that I've discussed at length the seeming contradictions to Randall Flagg as portrayed in King's works throughout his career. If you want to hear more about my thoughts on Flagg, you can check out the uh, second part of the Gunslinger review, the bonus edition of Eyes of the Dragon, the bonus edition of The Wastelands, the bonus edition of The Stand, the bonus edition of It, probably. <laughs> to catch you all up, I've, I used to have an issue that Flagg used the alias uh, as Martin for one reason, the alias of Walter for another, and the alias of Flagg for the third. Now, after decades of dwelling on this, I realized a couple things. One, for a character that is the embodiment of chaos, I've come to like the fact that his identity is never clean. I like that it's messy. And I used to have an issue with the fact that he never simply killed Roland when he had the chance as Walter. And then I realized that at no point does this character ever try to kill Roland, either as Martin or Walter or as Randall Flagg. Because of this, it's clear to me that Flagg can't kill Roland. He can't directly attack the gunslinger, so he's had to manipulate the world and the people around him. For instance, as Martin toyed with him to hurry him along so he'd take his gunslinger test too early in the hopes that he'd fail and be sent west, and in doing so would ensure that he'd never set upon the path to the tower. As Walter, he tricked Roland into sacrificing Jake, knowing that Roland would then draw the rest of his quartet into this world, and in doing so would stop Jake from being murdered by Jack Mort, thereby stopping Jake from coming into Midworld in the first place, creating for Roland a time travel paradox that would kill him and leave his companions stranded in a strange world. Again, he couldn't outwardly kill him, but he had to create an elaborate plan that includes a series of traps he hoped that Roland would fall into. So during the Wastelands, when Roland managed to draw Jake back into Midworld, Roland effectively closed the loop of the time travel paradox and healed himself. Because his original plan failed, Flag had to return to the narrative and come up with a new plan to stop him, one that manifests here. 
And this time, despite the illusion of the Emerald City, Flag is on the ropes. He's scrambling. The only advantage he has is the, su is the surprise of the insane TikTok man. As soon as Andrew Quick is dispatched, however, Flag has nothing. He can't attack Roland with his magic. Sure, he might be projecting a majestic city, but remember that it invokes the Wizard of Oz, who wasn't a wizard at all, but a charlatan, just like Flag. So for people that are still upset that Flag goes out like a chump in the final pages of the Dark Tower, it shouldn't come as a surprise, because King is showing just how powerless this character really is. And we've seen it before, actually. In The Stand, when someone finally stands up to him, he whimpers and he cries, you know, cries and he runs away. And I will definitely get into a lot of detail about um, the death of the flag once I get to the Dark Tower, Book 7, The Dark Tower. Now I want to talk about the Crimson King. Now this is the first time that the Crimson King has been mentioned in the pages of the Dark Tower. Remember that this novel is one that comes very soon after King finished off introducing us to the Crimson King in the pages of Insomnia. In that novel, King presented us with the big bad villain of the Stephen King universe, a character hell-bent on destroying the tower, the Crimson King. While we don't know much about him at this point, we know that within the pages of Insomnia, he's referred to as an all-timer, a powerful entity who actively sought the death of a child in the hopes that by killing the child, that child would not grow up to save Roland. The Crimson King will later be revealed to be an incompetent and impotent old man locked on one of the balconies of the tower, and everything that we've thought that he was, in fact, is just a lie. Like my acceptance of Flag, I'm growing to accept this version of the Crimson King because of what King is stating about the nature of evil. However, I do need to point out a continuity error here. In the 2000 re-release of The Gunslinger, King revised the scene with Sylvia Pitson to include a reference to the Crimson King. Specifically, she states that she's having the Crimson King's baby. So as far back as The Gunslinger, he's heard about the Crimson King, yet in the pages of Wizard and Glass, he hasn't heard of him. Even in the flashback, Stephen tells Roland, it's only by the grace of the gods and the working of Ka that you have not been sent west one more true gunslinger out of Martin's Road, out of John's Farson's Road, and out of the road which leads to the creature that rules them. So it's clear that Roland's father knows a lot more than he's leading on, and knows of the Crimson King's existence, even if he doesn't know his name. Regardless, we get a lot more about the Crimson King. Uh, the eye, which is the sigil for his character, is evident here, as it's the sigil used by John Farson, which you know, connects the rebellion to a much greater threat, a threat that the gunslingers had long since been aware of. Now I want to talk about visions of the future. So let's talk about what Roland sees in the grapefruit. Let's talk about one particular image he sees. You know the one. And thinking about it right now gives me goosebumps and breaks my heart. Of course, I'm talking about the vision and the death of Oi. Now, I am not saying that King has to give us happy endings. And for a series that includes three deaths of the same child, effectively turning Jake Chambers into Stephen King's version of Kenny from South Park, we shouldn't really expect things to turn out rosy for our characters. But with that said, when I first read this and saw a future with the sad and painful death of Oi, it made me nervous to continue. And then there's the thunderclap, which Roland saw in the grapefruit. The thunderclap, the place of quote-unquote slaughtered soldiers, the cloven helm, the rusty halberd. From here come the pale warriors. 
This is the thunderclap, where clocks run backward and the graveyards vomit out their dead. Now, when we get to the thunderclap, it is not the way that's presented within this description. The thunderclap, yes, is a blasted land. Okay, um, It is perpetually in darkness, but not because of supernatural qualities, which the way that it's presented here. Um, but more because there had just been massive amounts of radiation and poison that have just destroyed this part of the world. The thunderclap certainly, um, the, being a big land in uh, End World, certainly does play a major part in the later books of the Dark Tower, with Fetic and castle discordia and monsters living living in in, in in the caverns but at no point is the thunderclap a supernatural place with pale monsters and zombies and you know ghostly soldiers like that does not exist um that does not that does not exist that that incarnation doesn't which is too bad because Something called the Thunderclap, and this particular description, uh, where graveyards vomit out their dead, pale warriors slaughtered, like, it just sounds so haunting. Like, we're going to get to the origin of where all the boogeymen from Stephen King's universe has come from, right? But we never get that. Um, we get this weird blend of uh, science and magic, um, and then we get... You know, we get Divar Toy, Aljul Siento, Blue Haven, or Blue Heaven, where there's just this perfect Pleasantville. There's just this perfect little suburban town in the middle of this irradiated wasteland um, that has its own electric artificial sun to provide light. And that's the biggest part of the thunderclap that we see, where the breakers are breaking the beams. Um, but this, uh, But this isn't... It's not the way it's presented here. Um, you know, I mean, it, it just, with this description, it just feels, like I said, the, the origin of all the dark and slimy things that have populated any Stephen King novel, you know? And this, I think, combined with the fact that King had teased that Father Callahan was coming back, made me think that the Cotet would have to um, uh, travel through the land of vampires. Now, I, I understand that in the page of the Dark Tower, Roland does have to walk through some very dark places, which I guess may fulfill the promise of the Thunderclap, um, but it, it is never presented like this. Number four, the Tower. In Insomnia, King began to expand the mythology of the Tower, and we saw that it wasn't just a physical entity, but also a metaphor for the human condition. And not just the human condition, but the life experience for all things, great and small, human and non-human alike. Here, King continues to establish that the Tower is existence itself, when Blaine states, It is remarkable how human beings pitch their minds on love, yet it is a constant from one level of the tower to the next, even in these degenerate days. Now I want to talk about playing against expectation. The ending to the Dark Tower hits like a sledgehammer to the gut. It's brutally depressing, and King doesn't necessarily tease it here, but captures it nevertheless. Jake catches the reader up with the nonstop roller coaster ride of the wastelands and speaks to all the readers um, that expect 
happy endings. And he does this on page 28 of the first publication. After surviving all that, a kind of blissed-out surety had settled over him. Of course Roland would stump Blaine, who would then keep his part of the bargain and set them safe and sound at his final stop, whatever passed for Topeka in this world. Then they would find the Dark Tower and do whatever they were supposed to do there, write what needed writing, fix what needed fixing. And then, they lived happily ever after, of course, like folk in a fairy tale. So, like in, like folk in a fairy tale. We know, sadly, that's not the way that this is going to work out for them. Later, during a dream sequence, King tips his hat towards the ending of the book when Eddie dreams that Roland is the one driving a bulldozer to tear down the rose. The rose is a twinner of the tower, and the suggestion... When you look at the gunslinger, the novel, in relation to the dark tower, the novel, they serve as twinners themselves. As one ends, so as the end and the beginning meet up, forming a circle, the Dark Tower and the Gunslinger overlap. What is the tower but just Roland himself? When he arrives, the rooms look into his past. It's his version of what the memory warehouse was for Jonesy from Dreamcatcher. So what the dream suggests is that in his quest to save the tower, he's damning himself. And in the opening to the chapter, The Closing of the Year, in which King describes the traditions of the Reap, he writes, There is a sense, inarticulate but very much there, that things have gone amiss this season. It is the closing out of the year. It is also the closing out of peace. For it is here, in the sleepy, outworld barony of Mehis, that Midworld's last great conflict will shortly begin. It is from here that the blood will begin to flow. In two years no more, the world as it has been will be swept away. It starts here, from its field of roses. The dark tower cries out in its beast's voice. In the pages... Um, in the pages of the original edition of The Gunslinger, King referenced the beast that guarded the tower. In my review of The Gunslinger, I theorized that whether he meant to go that meant way back in the day or not, he set the stage for the ending of the Dark Tower if Roland is that beast. After all, Wal Walter tells Roland that Walter must slay the beast to reach the tower. Well, the beast is there to guard the tower, and who guards the tower but Roland? And what does Roland do at the end of the Dark Tower? He damns himself. So, in a sense, he slays the beast. Furthermore, here, in this description, the Dark Tower cries out in its beast's voice. Whose voice? Roland's voice. And why? Because the blood that is spilled is the blood of his true love, and it starts a domino effect that kills every single one of his friends for the rest of his life. So I've spoken before of how King superimposes the gunslinger over the tower. And in the end, it's clear that the tower projects Roland's life. Roland and the tower are interchangeable with one another, and if the tower cries out here, it cries out for Roland. It, because it's Roland crying out for himself. It's during the vision within the grapefruit when Roland first decides to make the tower his life quest. Now think about that. It's when he's inside the swirling mists of a ball that has been established as alive and evil. Roland never stands a chance. How could we ever expect a happy ending when the first time he sees the tower is under the influence of a malignant thing? 
This places the entire quest into the right context. And it makes sense that Roland's quest will come to consume him as the grapefruit does with everyone it comes into contact with. The Mani, or the Mani. I never know how to pronounce it. I always go with the Mani. During the riddling contest, Roland tells Blaine that he believes Court had often met with the Mani. While we don't learn much about the Mani, we can infer that they have something to do with other worlds within the multiverse based on the conversation the two share, though brief it may be. While we don't know what the Mani are here, we certainly learn more about them in the pages of Wolves of the Kala, the next Dark Tower book. And I'm not sure, but I think that in Wizard and Glass, this is the first time that King references this sect. I really don't remember keep catching um, references to them during rereads of the first three books. Now I want to talk a little bit about Arthur Eld. The Wastelands was the first time we had heard of Arthur Eld. But with King's continued reference of this character, it's clear that he's building up Roland's lineage. When Roland brings his papers to Sheriff Avery, King writes... The letter above the Frank was from one Stephen Deschain of Gilead, a gunslinger, which was to say a knight, squire, peacemaker, and baron, the last title having almost no meaning in the modern day, despite all of John Farson's ranting, of the 29th generation descended from Arthur of Eld on the line of descent, the long descendant to get one of Arthur's many gillies, in other words. King will continue to name drop and expand upon the mythology of Arthur Eld in the concluding three novels, emphasizing that he was the King of the White, linking Roland's story with our version of Arthur Eld, King Arthur, Roland being a version of Arthur himself, complete with his own evil monster son, Mordred. And then lastly, guys, I want to talk about something that I had never thought of before, and I'm not sure, I've never seen it before, I'm sure that it probably exists as a theory out there, and I'm probably that sure that everyone else has um, thought of this before me, but it's definitely one that I have uh, never thought about. So I wanna talk about Susan Delgado and Susanna Dean. So, I guess my question is, is Susanna the return of Susan? I mean, we have two names that are virtually identical. And King later goes on to give Jake the touch um, which kind of links him to Elaine, which I, I don't... I, I just won't go so far as to say that Jake is a reincarnation of Elaine Johns. But clearly, Cuthbert and Eddie are the same person. So just bear with me on this, okay? There's a moment here in Wizarding Glass. It's small, but it's there. When Cuthbert and Susan are interacting with each other, and he writes... For a terrible moment, Cuthbert was silent, looking over Susan's shoulder, seeming to study the waxing demon moon. She, held, she felt her heart stop. Then his gaze returned to her, and he gave a smile of such sweetness that a confused but brilliant thought, if I'd met this one first, it began, shot through her mind like a comet. So if Eddie is the reincar reincarnation of Cuthbert, and here it's established that if Susan had met Cuthbert first, things could have been different. 
then what if the reincarnation of Susan met the reincarnation of Cuthbert? Wouldn't that make sense now that Susanna and Eddie fall in love and be with each other? So this seems to justify the idea that Susanna Dean is the return of Susan Delgado. And it's little things. If you think about it through that through that lens, you, you start to see things. So Susan, um, or I'm sorry, I'm, I'm screwing up here. Susanna, she's the one with the immediate emotional reaction to Roland's story um, after he tells it to the quartet. And the first word that she speaks is chariutri. If she's the reincarnation or the twinner of Susan, why wouldn't her first words be the last words she hears as Susan? And at one point after the story is told, she can hear the Thinny talking to her and calling her Mrs. Oh So Black and Pretty, a variation of the title Mrs. Oh So Young and Pretty that Cordelia Delgado had spat at Susan. And think about this. Susan dies while pregnant. In the concluding three novels of The Dark Tower, it's revealed that Susanna is pregnant not with the speaking ring demon's child, but the child of Roland Deschane. Through a very complex and twisted way, Susan Delgado, if we're going to believe that Susanna is another version of Roland's long-lost love, eventually gives birth to Roland's child. And in the end, uh, Jake and Eddie die first, leaving Roland to continue the journey with his love one more time before being left by her before she too can fall victim of his quest. So based on the fact that um, David the Hawk might have been Roland's first sacrifice, but Susan is the first real sacrifice that is made to the Dark Tower. And if Susanna is the return of Susan, I like that she comes back not as the girl, but the woman who, on a metaphysical, spiritual level, has been hurt and has learned and won't make the same mistake again. So I'll get more into this as we read Wolves of the Collins, Song of Susanna, and The Dark Tower, but it's something to think about, guys, and if you have anything to add to it, definitely let me know. So this is all that I got for this week. Um, this has been a pretty lengthy review between this bonus edition and the uh, Wizard and Glass episode itself. Um, we're almost there, guys. We have... Uh, we have, like I said, we have Everything's Eventual, we have uh, Little Sisters of Aluria, and we have The Black House, and then we have Wolves of the Cow, Song of Susanna, and we got The Dark Tower. It's all coming up pretty soon, guys. But next week, next week we're moving away from that imaginative, well, it's not, not any less imaginative, but remember that I said that beginning with Insomnia, there was a period of time which saw um, insomnia and the Green Mile and Rose Matter and Desperation of the Regulators. There was just a chunk of just very imaginative concepts. And next week, I believe, with the novel Bag of Bones, I think that King is starting to kind of dip his toes into a more introspective, existential look where the supernatural and the plot take backseats to the character work, to the tone, to the 
commentary on on life. Uh, Bag of Bones is a haunting love story, and I'll review that next week. Um, in the meantime, everyone, uh, may you have long days and pleasant nights, and I will see you here next week, where M-O-O-N spells Stephen King cast.